This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Blue Wire. The Boston Celtics select Jason Tatum from Duke University. Brown on the break for the Celtics. Goes around the world. Oh, the circus game in Boston. Walker for three. Kemba Walker from downtown. Tatum drives down. Let's roll it down. Wow. Rebound. Gordon Hayward for two. Gordon Hayward with a corner crash. No block out. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Geno Time Podcast on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. We're brought to you by Bet Online. I'm Tom Westerholm, joined by Nicole Yang, and we're really excited to have a great guest with us today, Mirren Fader of Bleacher Report. Mirren is one of the best feature writers in the game right now. She does a lot of stuff on the NBA. Mirren, how are you holding up? Are you safe? You're in L.A. Uh, how's everything going for you right now? Oh, my gosh. Well, thanks for that, and, and thanks for having me. I'm okay. All things considered, <laughs> I'm okay. Um, I've eaten so many Oreos. I, I, <laughs> I think I'm going to turn into an Oreo. Um, but all, <laughs> all things considered, I'm safe. My family's safe. It is it is a super weird time. You know, I went from traveling all the time and going everywhere to going nowhere. But, yes, I'm, I'm grateful to be healthy and alive. Where were you when everything got shut down? Because you travel a lot. Were you in L.A. when the NBA shut its doors? Yeah, I was in L.A. Um, I did have things that I was going to travel for, but obviously it, it just changed everything. I think it's different because I'm a more of a features writer and I don't just cover the NBA. But yeah, I was definitely just in my apartment like, oh, so I'm a sports writer and there's no sports. What am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure you all dealt with, too. Yeah, it might even be more. Uh, it's probably more difficult for you because for us, it's like, OK, you know, uh, Tom Brady is is going elsewhere, whatever. There's like little angles that we can do here and there. But I mean, you you write like long, well thought out things quite often. I mean, I would imagine that this has complicated your uh, process a little bit. It definitely has. And I think a lot of what I do is predicated on in-person interaction, right? Like it's not just what somebody says, it's how they say it. It's not just, um, you know, what they're talking about. It's it's the expression on their face. It's it's the mood they're in, the emotion. These are things that, you know, you observe from spending time in person. And I don't have that anymore. So <laughs> it's not impossible to do my job. It's just different. And it's going to force me and it's going to force all of us to be more creative. But, you know, again, there are bigger fish to fry, you know, like the um, survival of the human race. So I'm just gonna, like, I'm just gonna try to remember that you know we are lucky, we are still employed, and it's gonna be okay. <laughs> and in typical Miran fashion, you're still writing great stuff. You just had a tremendous story about athletes abroad who are dealing with the effects of coronavirus. Like, how did that sort of come about? 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, immediately my first thought was in terms of what kind of content I was going to do, it was like, what kind of unique angle can you have to talk about this virus that people aren't talking about? felt like I was seeing a lot of like, oh, what does famous NBA guy do in his home? Um, oh, what is this funny meme that he's doing, you know, trying to dribble in, in his uh, living room? But what is something that nobody's talking about? And all I thought was the WNBA woman overseas um, and, you know, really like what it is to be stuck there. And so I I thought, you know, we're scared over here, but can you imagine being over there and not knowing what's going on and, you know, really having to um, face fear right in the face? And so what started out as like, oh, I'm going to talk to a couple women's players ended up being like, okay, let me just talk to as many athletes as I can in different countries. So, you know, we had Spain, we had Turkey, we had Japan, we had Italy, um, one woman from China that got the um, coronavirus. So it was hard, but thank God for FaceTime audio and and people (laughs) helping me out and saying, oh, you should talk to this person because, you know, I really do think like reporting is hard, writing is hard, but I really think the hardest part of all of this is coming up with unique stories. Did you already have like a relationship with the people that you were writing about who, who were overseas? How did you get connected with them? Some of them I did, like I did this piece on the Aces last year um, where I spent a week with the team on the road. So I knew Dierica Hamby from that, but um, the rest of them, I had no connection. And I asked some NBA trainers I know who trained some NBA players. I'm like, do you have any guys that are overseas? And um, I sort of got connected with people through, you know, some of my connections over there. And, um, you know, they, they really helped, but really it was, it was so random. It was just like, it was more about like where somebody is rather than who somebody is because Mm. there was no big names in there and that's why I think like that's what I love to do I love writing about people that you don't know about because it's it's not really about the name it's about the experience and I wanted people to feel the fear I wanted people to feel the uncertainty and you don't have to talk about a superstar to to make somebody understand those things I felt like one of the most impactful parts of that story was where you talked about how Derricka Hamby had um, she'd been told that if she steps outside her apartment, she'll be arrested and sentenced to three to five months in prison if she leaves and affects someone. Like just the implications of breaking the rule. It was it was just wild to to read about that, especially living in a country that is in sort of the early stages. Just hearing that stuff was was I thought that was one one of the craziest things that I I've read, you know, across the sports world in terms of in terms of the response to the coronavirus so far. Absolutely. You know, I look at my new routine, which is I wake up, I, you know, I take like a miles walk and, you know, the the coffee bean is still open. I'm like, oh, thank God. But, you know, it's like, it's like, what do I have to complain about? Right. Derica wakes up and she's like, if she even puts her pinky toe outside, she's going to get arrested, you know? So I think it's just, it's different perspective for Americans, you know? It's like, we're scared. Our lives have been interrupted, but look at that. Look at that police state. And, and you really try to think it's like, are we going to that? Will we be like that? So, I, you know, that's that's storytelling, right? It allows you to um, see a different part of the world um, and, and re- rethink about your own. Let's shift gears a little bit here and talk more about your career, how you got your start, how you got interested in sports writing, storytelling, things like that. So when did you sort of know that you were interested in pursuing this type of career? Yeah, you know, this was not something that, you know, I grew up like, oh, I want to be a sports writer. Um, I wanted to be a basketball player. Uh, basketball was my life, um, really, since I was 10 years old. So, you know, I passed 20 and I love basketball. I wanted to play in the WNBA, I wanted to play overseas. And um, you guys can't see me right now. Nicole, you've seen me, obviously. Um, <laughs> spoiler alert, Nicole and I are friends. And um, <laughs> I am really short. So I, when I say short, I mean like 
short. Like I am five feet tall. So the basketball thing did not work out, but I took it as far as I could. I played my first year in college and, you know, I loved it, but it just wasn't going where I wanted to go. And I actually loved writing this whole time. I've been writing in my diary every day since like fifth grade, which is so embarrassing, but true. <laughs> and uh, so, you know. No, I, diary writing is not something to be embarrassed of. That's just right? therapeutic. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole. I feel, val- <laughs> I feel validated for all my good, years good. of being a nerd. I appreciate <laughs> it. And <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I just, I loved writing. And then, you know, when basketball ended, it was such a rough period for me. It was an identity crisis. It was literally like, well, who am I now? And I thought, well, I love basketball. I want to stay in basketball. Like, what can I do? And so I thought, oh, let me be a sports writer. So um, I think the moment I knew that I wanted to do that was right after my freshman year of college. Um, I transferred schools. I came back home, uh, went to Occidental College, and I just started writing. I just started covering our men's basketball team. I wrote obits because nobody wanted to hire me because I had no, no experience. Um, so yeah, definitely did not get um, you know opportunities right away. And um, but I think the moment that I really knew that I wanted to stick with this forever was when I was at the Orange County Register out of college. I was there for my first four years, so 2013 to 17. And we had so many layoffs, so many things go wrong. And I was like, you know, this is a really hard life. If you aren't ready for it, get out. And I was like, no, I'm staying in. Was there like a, like an incident or a, or a moment that made you decide that you wanted to, to stay in? Because obviously, like you said, it, it can be really difficult. Was there like a story you told or, you know, something that that happened to you or, you know, a word of encouragement or something like that that kind of made you kind of decide to stick with it? Yeah, I was um, I was interviewing. So one of my beats was Cal State Fullerton. I did all the local stuff that all the beat writers didn't do. And I was doing a profile on the best soccer player on the women's soccer team. And we just had this great interview. So I was living in LA at the time, but I was driving to Orange County and everyone knows that's the drive from hell. And uh, it was an hour and a half. And I drove the hour and a half because I didn't want to do a phone You're speaking interview. to a mostly Boston audience. Nobody is going to get that. That's all right. <laughs> that's okay. You guys, it was a struggle. Believe me when I <laughs> say that drive there's no podcast that can make it better like it's just trash absolute trash and so I did that drive because I wanted to uh, make sure that I was connecting in person and we just had this riveting interview I felt you know you guys understand this when you just have one of those interviews where you connect with an athlete and you just feel so excited that on your way home you just want to jump out the window and start writing find a coffee shop and that's what happened and then I get a phone call from my boss on my way back when I'm super jazzed about this and he's like so um, we're having layoffs and I don't know if you're safe and uh, I just wanted to let you know that's what's happening. And I was like, oh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, it just really rocked me and I started crying and I was stuck in traffic on the way back. I, it took me over two hours to get home and I was just feeling so stuck and like far away from my dream. I was convinced I was going to get cut. And uh, I just felt like I was never going to make it out of Orange County. I was not moving up at that paper. Just felt like I didn't really have a future in this. And it was just a moment where I just said to myself, like, do you really love this? Like, do you really want to do this? And I was just like, yes, like, I love this with all my heart. Like, I really want to do this. And I just told myself, if you get cut, you get cut. Uh, But we're going to stick with this. And I think that was the moment where I just really became really determined. Um, because it can take you one of two ways, right? You can be like, I don't want to face layoffs all the time. This isn't for me. But I just got really determined. And I was like, you know, no matter what happens to me, I'm going to pursue this. 
Was there like an early stretch in your career where you really felt you hit your stride, if that makes sense? Like, I feel like for me last year during the playoffs, like when I was covering the Stanley Cup, I was like, wow, like I'm really enjoying this. Like, I'm really liking this. Like, was there sort of an extended point where you just felt like really confident and happy and like were pleased with how things were going? Yeah, I feel like that happened for me last year, um, which is a really long time from the period we were last talking about, because um, that was like 2019. Um, so that was two years after I left the register. And last year, I just felt like things were clicking for me. Like the story I did on the um, Antetokounmpo family, um, the Roberto Aguayo story about how he missed you know, all those kicks and how is he going to live life now. Pat Beverly, Brandon Ingram, I just felt myself instead of, so I'm a perfectionist, as you know, and instead of like just always being on my case about like, is this good enough? Is this good enough? I finally felt like I had tapped into like this well of creativity that was less, is this good enough? And more, am I enjoying myself? And I I just, I don't know, I was just able to like flow without that like constant negative voice in my head. Um, which is such a great thing when you're able to have that because it's so rare. Um, and I just felt like I was really hitting my stride last year. I, I just saw leaps that I was growing, you know, and that was encouraging to me. What sort of brought you there? What sort of things do you think helped you reach that point? I think it was just it's experience. You know, okay. when, when I went to Lithuania two years ago, I didn't know anything. I mean, I was just trying my hardest and it was sheer like, you know, guts and like work ethic that deliver that story for me. But the more you get thrown into situations that you're uncomfortable with, the more you grow. And I think that situation was so scary and so difficult. I mean, I didn't have a translator. I didn't have any access. Everything went wrong with everything. And I managed to like figure it out. And I think just, I just been thrown into so many situations where I had to figure it out that that's what gained confidence. When I went to Australia um, the following year for that follow-up story on the Mello, like I went on a plane and they told me I wasn't going to get access to him and I had to just figure it out. I had to drive on the other side of the road. Like there's just, there's just, and I almost died. Um, there are just situations I feel like I just been thrown into the fire that's really caused me to grow. Like I've been sincerely uncomfortable over the last two years in a lot of situations I've driven through like thunderstorms in Louisville I've like I don't I've just been in every I've had like hall of fame coaches yell at me I've had um you know stories where I get all the access and then I get none of the access a week later I think just constantly being challenged and challenging myself is what's allowing me to grow like I could pick really easy stories but I'm not Like I'm Mm -hmm. picking, I'm picking challenging stories on challenging people. And I really feel like that's what's helping me grow. One of the things that really comes through in your stories is that guys generally seem to open up with you or, you know, women or whatever, like whoever you're writing about really seems to open up with you, you know, and that runs the gamut from, from Giannis and his, and his brother to, like you said, Patrick Beverly to, you know, LaMelo, like guys who aren't necessarily people that you would think would open up. Like, you know, LaMelo, you know, as has been around this his whole life. You know, Pat Beverly is a, you know, a pretty tough dude. Like, how have you been able to get in those situations with with players who are very different people from one another, but you still seem to get, you know, similar results from from guys where they do seem to open up. And they do seem to tell you things that, that that you're looking for in these stories. I think it's treating them like people first and athletes second. Um, So it's just a different type of approach. Like, for example, Brandon Ingram, right? He was known as like so quiet that people think he's like 
pie or something. You know, like he's literally just like, <laughs> nobody says anything. He's never opened up. And I just didn't treat him like that, you know, and everyone wanted to ask about his weight. Why are you so skinny? I started the conversation with, hey, I know everyone wants to talk about that. I don't want to talk about your weight or physicality. I want to talk about what's going on up here. And I just pointed to my head. And I think he just respected that. Like, okay, like she's looking at this different. And I think that every interview I ask questions to these guys that are so, you know, it has nothing to do with like, what team do you want to play for? You know, how is your jump shot? You know, Pat Beverly, the first thing I asked is like, tell me about your mom. And it, it seems weird, but it's impersonal, but it just takes you on a different journey if you're, you know, if you have the guts to ask those things, because it shows them that you see them as more than basketball players. You, you see the humanity and then you can get to basketball. I, I think... Another thing is I always ask people, like, what's your story? Like, I'm here to listen. Like, I want to know. Like, I have things that I've prepared and things that I think this is about. But, like, only you know your story. So help me understand. And I think that there's a lot of people that don't want to um, – you know, seed control of the interview or make it seem like they're not in charge or they don't know what they're doing. But for me, it's it's really not an ego thing. It's just, it's listening is the most important skill. And I, I find that these guys open up to me because I show that I'm willing to listen. I, I won't name which one of the guys that you mentioned, but one of them said to me, like, you probably don't have time. And I was like, I could listen to you for hours. <laughs> I got I got all the time. I got all the time. Um, so I think they're just not used Do to Do you know what my job is? My job is to be sitting here listening to you. Please. My, my job is literally getting um, blown off and everyone canceling interviews on me. So yes, I have all the time. And um, so <laughs> I think it's like when they see that you're willing and caring, they start to open up. I also think there's the last point on this. I just look different than everyone that comes to their doorstep. Mm. You know, like, like I said, I'm short. I'm a woman. You know, I'm really not this intimidating figure. I, I just think that, like, I'm not better. I'm just different. That's it. You know, it's not it's not a better thing. It's just it's a different voice. It's a different energy. It's a different feeling. And I I do think that that helps as well. I'm going to just go ahead and take that as I'm intimidating. to end <laughs> Which uh, I, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's difficult to choose, but I mean, is there is there a story over the last year that you have felt like okay, that was the one where I mean, the average person would read all your stories and be like, hey, that was a home run. But is there one that really kind of felt like the best one for you? I think it was my recent one on Gigi Bryant, the late Gigi mm -hmm. Bryant, because if you notice in the lead, it's very unlike my normal leads. Like it's just. It's not, it's not a scene, capital S scene. It was just <laughs> writing straight from the heart about what it is like to be a young girl loving basketball. And I just, speaking of diaries, you know, I wrote some of that in my diary when I was 14. Like I, I just connected with her and I connected with her story. And I just felt like that story meant a lot to me. I'm not saying it was great. I'm not saying it was this or that. It's just what I felt writing that story was different than what I felt for anything before. I really just... I can't explain it. I just felt so connected to the page and so emotionally invested. And I put my heart into every story, but I think that one in particular, I just felt like it just felt right. And we all know as writers, it never feels right. When you turn in a story, <laughs> you're like, is this English? Like, I don't, I, I can't. I, I said Nicole my stuff all the time. I'm like, Nicole, like thoughts, you know? And like, <laughs> I'm, fully, I'm fully expecting her to be like, not good. But, um, you know. Never. I, <laughs> I love you. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just so hard to know if yours is good or not. But I think with that one, I wasn't concerned, is this good or bad? I was just like, how does this feel? This felt right, you know? It's just a different feeling. We're gonna we're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back, 
Uh, Mirren has written a bunch of really excellent stories about guys who are who are on the Celtics and guys who are in the draft, which is one of my favorite topics. So we're going to talk about some of that stuff too. We'll be right back in a minute. The Geno Time Podcast on the Blue Wire Podcast Network is brought to you by Bet Online. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner still has hundreds of sports, events, and games to wager on, or let them bring Vegas to you with their online casino and blackjack, all open 24 hours a day and all online, including their $750,000 poker series. If you're into props and entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the weather. Visit their website and join today to receive a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Be sure to use the promo code BLUEWIRE, that's B-L-U-E-W-I-R-E. Bet online, your online wagering experts. Okay, so in April 2018, Mirren wrote a story called Unassuming Indiana Basketball Phenom Romeo Langford Just Wants to Play Ball. So this was way before Romeo even committed to Indiana, let alone was drafted by the Celtics. How did you first learn of Romeo and what made you decide you wanted to profile him? Well, I saw on Twitter, I saw some signs saying, you know, Romeo, stay home or something like that. (laughs) And I just thought, what? You know, in this age, like people are really making billboards to make this kid stay at home. And um, it just intrigued me so much. And I just thought, wow, small town. What if I go there and I just kind of do like a woman on the street reporting where I just talk to everyone in every business? So that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I ended up doing. I literally would just walk into any business and just be like, hello, I'm (laughs) a reporter. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I want to do something on Romeo. And you know, when you have a name like Romeo, it's it's Jesus Shuttlesworth. It's literally like, oh yeah, duh, Romeo. He's like the center of our universe. And um, it was just very fun. It was fun. It was fun collecting anecdotes. Okay, so two things. One, when you mentioned that his dad wanted to name him Valentino. That I could totally see. Right? Oh, my God. He could definitely be a Valentino in addition to a Romeo. But He could totally pull that off. I mean, that is very – that's, like, next level. Like, Agreed. You know, you can't just have normal confidence and swag when your name is Valentino, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Two, though, the scenes you describe, like you said, what you saw on Twitter, just, like, stay Romeo. Like, Romeo Langford, please choose IU. Like, those just were so foreign to me as someone who grew up in Connecticut and now works in Boston. College sports just don't have that same effect or influence in New England. So to hear just about how they were trying to recruit this, like, hometown kid to stay home, it kind of reminded me of um, Tyler Hero, somebody else that you profiled, and the reaction to when he decommitted from Wisconsin. It just feels like a different world. Yeah, it's that's such a great point. It was so foreign to me, too. I was thinking about that as well, because, you know, being from L.A., like literally nobody stays home. <laughs> like, if, <laughs> like if you're from L.A., chances are like you're not going to UCLA, you're not going to USC. And so I just it was so different, but it was so cool. You know, it's like he was really the hometown pride. And you don't really see that a lot of time. You don't see like people would line up to his games for like three hours, like after. And I think there was one detail. I haven't read that story in a while, but his pizza would get cold or something in there. I don't know what I'd said, but like, yeah. And I was just like, wow, he's like a superstar in a 17 year old body. That's crazy. One of the things that made me laugh about that is everybody was yelling, stay home, Romeo, stay home, Romeo. He's from New Albany, which that's like 10 minutes from Louisville. Right. Like, he's so far from Indiana University there. I just thought it was funny that everybody, like, saw him as this hometown kid. It's like, well, if he was really going to stay home, he would, like, Louisville's a pretty good landing spot for him. 
Right. There's this New Albany was I actually really enjoyed New Albany is, you know, there's like your coffee shop, your local barber shop. It was just very homey, you know, like I love traveling to places like that. You know, L.A., like you don't even know your neighbor. And it was just so cool <laughs> to see all these strangers know him. I thought one of the one of the stories that uh, I, I wrote a feature about Romeo earlier this year, too. And one of the stories that that stood out to me was this little kid who there was like a five year old boy whose mom had passed away from cancer. And um, the, the dad reached out to Romeo and was just like, if, if I recall correctly, that, that and just was like, you know, it would mean the world if, if you came by and and Romeo came to this this kid's funeral and just like sat outside with him. And um, Romeo told me he like threw rocks just with the little kid, just like just something to take his, his mind off it. And I just thought that was like there were it felt like reading through your story. Everybody has a story like that about Romeo. Like there's like some like some connection to him from New Albany, like. You know, when I wrote that story, I immediately I gained like 50 Twitter followers all from New Albany because they're like, oh, OK, this is the guy who's going to be writing about Romeo. I need to follow him. Like he is such a seminal figure in that community. It was just re it's, it's really fascinating to see um, just because, you know, he's 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 a nice prospect. He's like a good player. But, you know, in, in, at, for the Celtics, he doesn't play that much. But there is a there is a, a you know section of the country where he is just revered. And I think that's really interesting. Well, and I think it's because it's a it's his personality. I think that his personality shines through. It's what makes people drawn to him. You know, when you when you talk to Romeo, he's very shy. He's very quiet. He has this very like boyish kind of like feel to him, and just a little shrug and a little smile. You know, he's really you know he's really young. He makes me feel really old. I'm only 28, but I'm like no God, I am like ancient. And um, you know, I I think that like people love his humility, and I think that he's always willing to help somebody out he does a lot of charity work um you know he doesn't play a lot now on the Celtics like you mentioned but like he is a hard worker and I he accepts his role and he really does want to get better I caught up with him recently when the Celtics were in in town to play the Lakers and you know he couldn't have a better attitude he just really I don't know I just get the sense from him he's not frustrated he's just like I'm learning a lot and I'm getting better I, which I think is really cool Reading your story now, I feel like a lot of the things you describe still hold true two years later. You mentioned he always comes to the gym 90 minutes before games. He's always the first one at TD for home games, and he's usually there like four hours before tip-off. Um, he still has like this really youthful energy. You called him the serial prince, which I really enjoyed <laughs> oh because of God. how much he likes um, Reese's Puffs. Which again, can we, like, he, can we just like honestly, cr like when I read back my old work, I just cringe. So thanks for not judging me, but yes. <laughs> no, I loved that. Um, I feel like it just captures like his youthful vibe, but at the same time, he is like sort of an old soul. Like he loves Michael Jackson. You mentioned that he used to play the trumpet, but he didn't join the marching band because he didn't want to play in front of the whole school. Like all of that just is still Romeo. Like, like he just has the same energy now. It's so true, and I think that's why he's um, going to be okay in the NBA because, like, I I've always been fascinated by this. You know, the NBA wants their prospects at their youngest, but their most developed, which is inherently an oxymoron, right? And Romeo has a long way to go to be developed, and he's really young. But when it's what makes the difference, I think, between the the young ones that stick and the one the young ones that fall away is is the attitude, and you know he doesn't seem to have changed and i think when you when you have a core like that that is very humble and very um you know just very like goes about the work like doesn't need to post workouts just does it because he wants to do it because he needs to do it I, I think that's what really makes these young people stick 
Well, and I think one of the things that's really working in his favor, to your point, is that he's a really chill guy. He's he's kind of he's very much a go with the flow type of personality. He seems like, and he's in a situation where he's not going to get a ton of playing time right away. But if he works hard, he can develop into something because the you know the Celtics have a really good developmental staff. They have a really good sense of how to turn a talented young wing into something that can, you know, into like a really good NBA player. So he sort of has this attitude where he's, he, he is a hard worker. He is going to get there early. He is going to get shots up, but he's also kind of fine with like <coughs> waiting for his opportunity. And he sort of understands the hierarchy of where the Celtics are at right now. And I feel like those two things are going to kind of, it's going to be a nice confluence of factors for him, I think. Yeah, you know, we always say wait your turn, right? Well, I mean, that is a real reality for people like Romeo. But, you know, if you take it the right way, like he has, I, I mean, I, I do think good things are in store for him. Um, you never know when people are going to hit their stride. I mean, look at Brandon Ingram. Like, the growth has yeah. been incredible. Um, you know, there's something to be said for really, like, taking time to develop. Uh, not everyone is ready right away. And that's okay. Like, I really, I think that we need to learn more patience and um, just look at some of these guys who are beginning to flourish now. Yeah, I feel like those injuries that Romeo had to start the season are obviously they were super frustrating for him, but I feel like in a way they're a blessing in disguise because even though some people were quick to label him like as a bust or whatever, it sort of eased the pressure and now he can just sort of operate at his own pace and nobody really is expecting anything from him, even though he was a lottery pick. Yeah, and it, it also goes back to leadership too um, in your organization. Like, are your coaches, are your GM willing to like invest that time in you and, and be patient? And that's the difference too, I think, when somebody is able to make the leap or not. So I'm eager to see what happens to him. One of the other uh, really good features that you wrote about a Celtics player, you covered Marcus Smart, um, who is obviously a pretty fascinating guy. It's been it's been interesting uh, recently. Uh, he obviously was the Celtic who uh, came out and said that he is uh, has coronavirus and sounds like he's doing all right. So that's really good. Um, going through the, the, the Smart story, uh, kind of coming into that story, what were you hoping to do with it? What did you know about Marcus and and, uh, you know, what made him a guy that you wanted to profile? I think at that time, Marcus was not this like universally like beloved hustle player. Like I think to Celtics fans he was, but there was something polarizing about him at that time. Like I definitely think he was hated in a lot of ways by opponents. Um, I think there's been such a shift nationally. Like, oh my God, we love Marcus. Like protect Marcus at all costs, you know? And I know that like Celtics people have been like that, but I do think at the time that I was profiling him, it wasn't, there wasn't that much Marcus love. I, I think him punching the wall and that incident, like there were a couple of things that like really were really controversial. And what I wanted to know was how did losing his mom change him? Because I had seen several articles about the grief of his mom, but I never really saw anything that connected the grief to whatever he would become on the basketball court. And um, Brad put him in the starting lineup for a stretch of games, and all of a sudden the Celtics got so much better. And I thought, what does grief do to someone? How, do, how are you playing the best basketball of your career at the worst moment in your life? So I just thought, I want to connect the pieces. You know, you talked to a lot of you know family friends. You talked to Phil Forte, uh, you know, both senior and junior, who were, have both obviously been in Smart's life for a long time. Uh, do you remember kind of just w what the what the sense was around the people around Marcus about you know how that was affecting him and and how they were seeing him you know try to try to get through it? It just hurt him so badly. It, it wasn't like something that you could 
um, compartmentalize and like put in a box and, and go about your life. Like everything reminded him of her. Like he would just be somewhere and some memory would pop up and it would just, it would stab, you know, and it's, it's so painful. And he was really, really, really struggling. But at the same time, you know, grief sometimes causes us to grow up. And I think that Marcus, they really described him as like growing up in this moment. Like when, sometimes when you go through things like that, it just forces you to become more mature and more reflective. And they really described him as somebody that was kind of in the middle of this um, just spiritual growth. You know, like who am I without my family? Because, you know, we are all so much of our identities is like who we love and who's around us and who anchors us. And suddenly when you don't have that anymore, you don't even seem to know who you are anymore. And imagine having to go through that and then be this like very important player on this very good team. And I think Marcus was really trying to figure out like who he was without her. And and so they just described him as like, you know, trying to sort of swim through grief. It's hard. I uh, I did enjoy one one part of the story that that actually didn't have to do with grief or anything. It was just uh, Phil Forte saved a tiny piece of glass, which was the piece oh, of, yeah. <laughs> the piece of glass that uh, that nearly. I Damn. mean. People, like, Marcus still has the glass too. Absolutely. Uh, like it, it is wild. Like people forget how close he came to really, like, really damaging his career, if not, you know, ending it. Like right. that that little I mean, he really put himself in a tough position. He uh if anybody doesn't remember, he he punched a picture frame um after after a loss to the Lakers, and the glass went into his hands and almost hit a couple of tendons it would have like done like real permanent damage, right? That's that's he, what the situation was there. He said the doctor told him it was one eighth of an inch from potentially not being able to play basketball like ever again. Like that's that's insane that that happened. It was such a bad moment, just in, not just like literally like almost ending his career, but like publicly, like um, reputationally, it just made him seem like totally unhinged. Like, like I said, like his reputation was in a totally different space when I profiled him. Like it, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think like Celtics people loved his passion, but I'm talking about like the greater outside world definitely kind of saw him as a little um, crazy after that point. But um, they just didn't understand like some people's passion is just is expressed differently. And I, I think it is so telling that he kept that glass. And I wanted to show like the evolution of Marcus Smart is somebody that may do something like that, but learns from it, understands that that is not the way. And I, I just, he really grew up after that point. And I think sometimes, you know, we don't really allow the maturation of athletes. Like we expect them to grow on the court, right? We expect them to develop a jump shot if they don't have a jump shot. We expect them to put on weight if they're a little frail. But we don't really talk about like the mental evolution of these athletes. I think we're starting to as, you know, mental health and all these things are becoming buzzwords. But like Marcus really went on a whole evolution of his mind from that incident to his mom. It's sort of to me when I was writing it, I felt like he was in the most important period of growth like in his life one of the and, and one of the things that i think is interesting about him is that as he's gone through that evolution it's 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 sort of crystallized that he is a we, we talk a lot of times about like oh this athlete like as reporters i think a lot of the times we talk about athlete as oh he, you know he's a good dude because he gave me like a solid interview or he's a good guy because you know we connected pretty well or whatever but like marcus is one of the people who i feel like even with all of the you know like the, the incident with at you know in college where he approached the fan and and uh, you know obviously you know punching a picture frame like all that stuff it, it he still has always just been like a good person just when you're around him like you can just kind of tell that he is 
you know, that, that he's got, he seems to be a pretty good guy generally. Like, I, I don't think that there's anybody who's going to have an issue with, with Marcus, the human being, like he's very passionate. He's insanely competitive and, and he wants to win and he'll, you know, throw himself around and, and hurt himself potentially to win. But I don't think anybody's ever going to question, like, is he a good guy? Is he not a good guy? Like it's, it, his character still comes through pretty clearly in, in any conversation you have, I feel like. I mean, I think um, preconceptions are what I find most interesting. So when I did the Marcus interview, I had friends be like, so how was it? Like, I think they just expected him mm. to like throw a, you know, <laughs> throw something at me or just, you know, are you ready to up? You know, it's like, I don't know what they were expecting. Like, are, I wasn't going to go one-on-one with Marcus, you know? And it's just like, same with Pat Beverly. They were like, so like, what was it like? You know, as if like Pat was about to like swarm me full court, you know, like I think, I think there's these like, uh, you know, preconceptions that we have about these people because of their on court demeanor. But that's the coolest part about doing the job that I find myself doing is that who they are on the court and off the court are like so different. They're so different. I mean, when, when you get a man to talk about his love for his mother, you see a completely different man. Speaking of Pat Beverly, you know, the synergy, him and his mom was half the story and same with Marcus, Marcus and his mom. It's like, you know, I think we need, really need to start looking at athletes as multidimensional, you know, like they're so complex because why they're just like us, you know? So yeah. I think to your point about who Marcus is and his character, it's like, that I feel is why I love feature storytelling. It's like at the end of a story, I want to be able to portray what somebody's like because I'll never know him. I, Marcus has secrets and feelings and thoughts that I'll never know, but I want to come as close as possible to like delivering a snapshot of what somebody's like, you know? On a very like basic fundamental level, I enjoyed when you compare and contrasted him. I feel like this also, again, holds true. It's like he got ejected and fined $35,000 for charging at Atlanta's DeAndre Bembry, but he also was the one to break up a disagreement between teammates Jalen Brown and Marcus Morris. Like, I feel like that's still true today. Like, he'll get fined or ejected or something will happen on the court, but then he'll also be, like, a leader in the locker room. And then you say he shot 42.9% on threes in January. Then he had a spell where he missed 20 straight in February. And I feel like <laughs> maybe it's not – he doesn't miss that many anymore, but, like, it's still true. Like, he just – when you get Marcus Smart, like, you get all of him, and that's, like, both the positive extreme and the other side of it. We're all like that. Like, we're yeah. all – there's parts of us that, like – are that get it and parts of us that are still struggling like i think it's so normal to have these conflicting parts of our identities um nicole unless unless you have anything else on marcus smart looking at shifting gears here to uh nerding out about draft guys are you uh, are you cool with that go for it all right so Marin, you recently wrote a story about my favorite draft prospect actually you've written feature stories about my two favorite draft prospects uh in the 2020 draft class or presumably uh, I don't think I don't think I've, uh, either of them has officially declared, but um, Onyeka Okungwu. Let's start with him because he is he's my favorite. Uh, your story was really good. You wrote a lot about about his his brother and how you know his his brother's passing affected him. What were some of your biggest takeaways from from the conversations you had with Onyeka and with you know his family and, and just the people around him? Never seen a prospect so humble. I mean, he doesn't mm. even, he's about to go top five potentially, and he doesn't think about the NBA at all, at all. His mom, they don't talk about it because they think that it could easily not happen. I mean, when do you see that? Usually, like most prospects, 
at 13, when they start getting tall, they're like already planning, like when I get to the NBA and eh, we're going to get this. And, you know, he's he's on the brink of, of cracking an NBA roster and he still doesn't believe it. So that is completely refreshing, new and different. The other thing is that he has incredible potential to evolve. If you look at his game, mm-hmm. only four years ago, he didn't even have like a drop step. I say that, you know, as truthfully as possible. It's like he didn't have finesse. He didn't have moves. He was hardworking. He ran to the rim hard. He will get a block. But he's just his, – his ability to add to his game every year gives him so much potential. I mean, what you'll see his rookie year in the NBA is not what you'll see – three years, five years. I mean, I I really think he has the ability to stick in the league for a really long time because he continues to evolve. We don't really see players of his size and position or positions that have a passion for defense. He, when he talks about defense, he gets so excited. It's, it's really Mm. adorable. He's like, I love blocking shots. And you know, he's just like sitting there and he's getting all jazzed. And I'm like, okay, like we're not even on the basketball court, you know, but he just, (laughs) he's just so excited. And I I find his passion to be really like uh, genuine. You mentioned how humble he is and how he doesn't really think of himself that way. Do you think that has anything to do with the fact that his formative years, you know, you you mentioned a, a guy getting tall and immediately thinking I'm going to the NBA, his formative years, he was tall, he was athletic, he was really good. But he was outshined constantly by the other guys on his Chino Hills team with the Ball Brothers. Do you think that had anything to to do with it? Just like he was even while he was this star player. And honestly, he might end up being like one of, if not the best out of you know himself and the Ball Brothers on those Chino Hills teams. But do you think that is part of the reason why he's kind of, you know, less outgoing about his own potential just because he was around these other stars both on and off the court? Yeah, I definitely think that's a big part of it. I mean, you know, for him, he went from like, the only time I'm going to touch the ball is if I get a rebound and a putback (laughs) or something. So when you don't have plays run for you, you know, the red carpet isn't like drawn out for you, like, you don't have an ego. And I think playing with those people just really taught him how to play a role. And that's so much a reason why he doesn't take things for granted. You know, that year, you know, most freshmen are like, all right, I gotta, I gotta average 20 to 25 points a game. I gotta go to this exposure camp. I gotta drop this and this. He was literally like, please let me make it up and down the court in practice in nine seconds. So we don't have to keep making the team run, you know, like <laughs> he, he was just starting from the bottom. So, you know, and, and all the players around him were getting shine and nobody was talking about him, but you would see a referee come up to the coach, like, Hey, that Okongwu kid, he plays hard. I like his spirit. And then Suddenly it was like, okay, hey, you know, he's he, 10 points. Okay, making a difference. And then it would slowly just, you know, make critical plays and critical plays. And so I think when you don't have stardom immediately, you just know that you have to hustle, you have to work. And he's been conditioned to, to think like that and to operate like that. You mentioned in your story about, you, you talked about him facing Bam Adebayo. And I, 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 was, I was fascinated by that because, uh, you mentioned the first time he 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 thought that Bam looked like Thanos, <laughs> and that was really funny. But then the second time they they faced off, he had fourteen and ten and five blocks. I was actually at that game. I, oh, I'm pretty wow. sure. I'm pretty sure it was the uh, the Hoopal Classic game because he just destroyed Bam. Like Bam couldn't do anything against him, and Bam also like Bam's team wasn't very good, and the Ball Brothers were just getting out and running and you know getting dunks and easy easy shots. But I mean, he really was excellent. Bam had, you know, maybe like 20 and 10, but he just, he barely, I, I didn't even think Bam was very good. He, he was dropped him on my, like my draft board at the time. Like he 
he got really good really fast. And I, I think that's kind of an underrated thing about him is, is how quickly he got good and now how how much better he can get once he, you know, now that he's been in, he's got a year in college, once he gets NBA training under him. I, I, I'm just, I'm really high on where he can go from here. Yeah, and I think it's that. And it's also like motivate, motivation from not doing well against these guys. Like this anecdote didn't make mm. the piece, but, you know, he went up against TJ Leaf a lot in high school and TJ like had his way with him the first couple times and and that that like motivated him so much in the same way Bam did and so I think he he remembers these challenges he looks at them like challenges and he's like all right that guy is not doing the same thing to me the next mm. time and so I think with TJ with Bam with all these people like it just it motivated him and so I know like if if he goes to the NBA and that happens and somebody just absolutely destroys him like I, there's a high probability the next time around like it's not going to happen definitely like he's he's definitely too high on my draft board which I'm, I'm going to put out on Monday when this comes out actually but he's definitely too high I realize that but I'm just I'm so fascinated by a guy his size like he's got good size who can who can switch who can use his feet really, really well. Like he's, he's such a good defender. You mentioned how excited he is to be a defender. Like that's really good to hear because I mean, he has real high level switch, everything small ball five type potential. I feel like I think a team who, who takes him, you know, I don't know that you're getting like a super duper star, but if you take him high in this kind of questionable draft class, I think you're for sure getting a very high level role player at a, at a pretty important position. Yeah, and not just, you know, switching in defense, but he does have a really nice touch. It's just right, in, yeah. in Enfield system, like he doesn't get to have those looks, but he can knock down that elbow jumper. He and he's been working on his threes. He said, I shot threes in high school when I was a senior. So I think he can shoot better than people think. He's very aware of like obviously like having to stretch the floor and I think he can do that. And I think like that I think the biggest thing is that he's no longer one dimensional. Er, earlier in his career when the he was playing with the balls. He was just seen as like purely defense. And now, you know, he's worked on his game so much where he can give offense and defense. So I really do think that he is at this stage in his life, the most complete he's ever been as a player. How high on your list of stories does like on your list of subjects, does LaMelo ball rank when, when people talk about like, Oh, you, you wrote about this guy. Tell me something about him. Like, like, is it is, is LaMelo like the most asked about person when you when you just are uh, are out with people or when you're just talking to somebody? It definitely is. And I think okay. partially <laughs> it's because it was international. You know, I got to go to Lithuania. I got to go to Australia. You know, for some reason, my company trusts me to do that. <laughs> Literally, I'll never. I can't imagine why personally. I mean, <laughs> I, I just when they asked me to go to Lithuania, you know, I was a lowly freelancer. I was, you know, unproven. And so they took a chance on me. And so I think people are interested because it wasn't just that I profiled him. It was that I got time. I, I was, you know, almost a month in Lithuania and two weeks in Australia. And, you know, these days I remember at the register, I couldn't um, get them to pay for my mileage from LA to Anaheim, which anyone knows is 40 <laughs> miles. Okay. like So um, thank I, you for clarifying. Yeah. I'm so, I know we're, we're a Boston pod and <laughs> that makes no sense to you guys, but yes. Um, so I, people do ask me about him also because I think he's so misunderstood and complicated everyone just kind of thinks he's an asshole but he's actually so deep and complex and i think people are drawn to that what was i mean your your story was really good it had just in, an incredible amount of detail it certainly felt like you were there for a long time what were what were some of the i guess what were some of the moments with lamello or around lamello that you feel like are going to stand out 
to you just you know not not from the story necessarily or maybe from the story but just stuff that you're going to remember when he told me about the anecdote where he was um a young young kid and he was in that gym in southern california and there some guy started to shoot up the gym the way lamello talked about this moment to me when trying to describe his current relationship with his dad um basically his dad literally swooped up and him and his brothers in his arms and got them out of the gym and nobody got shot from their family um to safety really hit me hard because i think it's very hard for him to describe his relationship with his father and that anecdote really said it all for me it's like okay things are complicated right now we don't necessarily see eye to eye what my dad does looks bad on me, but like that man is going to save me from gunshots. I, I just, and the way he said it to me, we're on the beach, we were just walking. He was washing off his um, like sand from his feet. And I don't know that that just sticks with me. I think when he told me that anecdote, I knew exactly. I was like, that's going to be the gut of my story. I knew it was mm. a big moment. Um, I crack up when I think about all the times we went to McDonald's together. Like, you know, we could have gone anywhere. We could have gone to the most <laughs> fancy places. And he's like, no, you got to try the McFlurry, you know? And it was just like so adorable. And just like, and he's like, I swear to God, they have more cookies. And, you know, I just look back on that. It was just so, so refreshing, you know? He was like, you got to come to McDonald's as if like I haven't gone like a trillion times in my life. And, um, <laughs> You know, just but I think the parts that really get to me is how um, how tough his life is in a lot of ways. Like when he told me people only look at me as a dollar sign and I wish you guys could have seen the look on his face. It really kind of broke my heart because um, it was so honest and so sad. And it just the look wasn't like, oh, my God, I'm about to cry. It was like, yeah, this is my life. And it was just such a real moment. The fact that he even has that awareness at his age, right? I feel like just shows to how accelerated his life is. It's accelerated and it's also like he's not allowed to show emotion. Like the scene in the car when they were reading the Forbes article and they basically described him as like an animal, like a piece of stock. Like even if he doesn't play, he's well worth the investment. To see the way he quieted, it's he didn't have to say anything in that moment. He just sort of like quieted and looked really distraught and then it was like immediately his instinct was like turn up the music because that was like his only coping thing is like I don't want to cry I don't want to show emotion I'm clearly upset but like let me just turn up the music I thought that was one of the realest um scenes and it just it sticks with me because isn't that how we all try to deal you know a lot of times it's not even saying anything it's just like witnessing the moment where you just feel like really dehumanized and you just what what else can you do you know and i think that's like a real problem like obviously i think lamello has has it you know maybe worse than anybody to this day um or, you know i think we're probably going to see that with Bronny james where these kids are so i mean like they're so young and they're still just being commodified in a way like where all these adults are able to make so much money off them i mean you look at Zion Williamson, you look at, um, you know, any of these guys who are, who are coming into the NBA right now, and they're all such viral phenomenons, but, you know, they're just kids and they're just like, they're just trying to like build themselves up to a, to a career. And I, I just, I think that's, I think that's kind of a shame when it comes to the current way that, that, you know, kids are, are sort of, I guess, publicized before they're drafted. Um, and I think, again, I think LaMelo is sort of the post 
sort of the poster boy for that. He's he's one of the first real, you know, sort of YouTube stars who's going to become an NBA star who now his entire childhood has, or, you know, like, or at least a, a big chunk of his childhood, he has been this, you know, a product as opposed to just kind of a kid. Yeah, I, I've had a lot of people ask me, like, why do you profile high school kids so much? And as if it's like a negative thing, you know, as if like, you know, it's not a cool beat or whatever. And it's not my beat. I don't really have a beat, but <laughs> I, I, you know, it's the way they say it. It's just kind of like dripping with snark, you know? And I'm like, young people are the most interesting people on the planet. Young athletes, the way they're commodified, like you're saying, fascinates me. I profiled Jalen Green, I think like two years ago. And just how conscious he was about the ways that people saw him and commodified him and what was going to happen to him and how much he was trying to salvage his hometown childhood in Fresno before he can't control it anymore was was fascinating to me. It's the same way I think people dismiss young adult fiction. I love YA. I will be the first to stand YA. And like, <laughs> yes. you know, and it's just like, I think there's just such a dismissal and an arrogance of young people, but like they are the brightest among us. And I, I love talking to young athletes. I think they're so smart. I think they have so much to offer and say. And I think you cover them and treat them in a way that's different. Like Adam Silver has mentioned how Michael Jordan, for example, when he was in college, he could just sort of like make whatever mistakes he made and nobody would really find out or they wouldn't be like blasted on the internet. Whereas if Zion Williamson goes to a party, there's inevitably going to be a bunch of phones up recording him. Whereas you're like, actually, if you were to profile Zion, like would be talking to him and sort of like capturing who he is and like his spirit and his thoughts and things like that. Definitely. I mean, do you remember this is like really funny, but you remember the video of him talking to his like potential girlfriend or something? I don't <laughs> I just thought like what an adorable moment. It just kind of reminds <laughs> you like they have lives outside of this, you know, and it's like they're con like concerned about prom. Like I just re recently profiled Markel Fultz and his coach told me that he asked his former uh, Washington coach, like, what do you think I should wear? Like, should I do this? Should I do these details? Like, what do you think about the pants? You know, and it's like we just forget like they're kids you know they're so mm -hmm. much more basketball is what they do it's not who they are i did want to mention i uh, i had forgotten that you wrote a jalen green piece and i am so excited about jalen so oh my gosh right. i love him he's so good and the um, short shorts i mean we're just starting trends <laughs> i mean okay so the short shorts thing is funny because <laughs> if you if you watched high school basketball I want to say like four years ago, five years ago, maybe you could have seen the short shorts trend coming. Right. And now really. like now those guys are starting to get to the NBA and now you're starting to see like NBA me to be like, wow, look at that guy's shorts. They're so short. It's like, <laughs> yeah, dude, it's been it's been coming. Right. Right. Well, and, and the fact that he calls the team like the unicorns or I don't know what he calls. So, so, I mean, they're they're like coming up with names. I don't know. Again, I feel really old in this discussion now. <laughs> I, I That wasn't me before. Uh, literally, when I talked to LaMelo, I was like, oh, my God, I'm a decade older than him. This is so weird. <laughs> you know, you have these moments where you're like, you're not like the super young rookie reporter anymore. I'm still young. Can we confirm that? But like still, you know, definitely it's still young. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to also claim that I'm young, even though I'm, I'm now older than every member of the Celtics team uh, <laughs> since Al Horford was traded. Or, uh, since Are Al you Horford actually? <laughs> yeah, it's Brad Wanamaker is almost as old as me. Like he's like a month or two older than me or younger than me. Oh, so. my God, Tom. I, Nicole, I'm aware. Thank you. <laughs> you know, much. Tom, like, wait, sorry. that's crazy. <laughs> Because, no, not to make you feel older, but yeah, I no, feel like going. you. Just keep, <laughs> keep rolling. Tom, own it. You got to own it. We're owning it. My birthday is April 5th. We're owning it. Okay. All right. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. All right. Mirren Fader. 
thank you so much for being on, on the pod. Uh, make sure you read. I mean, if, yeah, I would hope that you're already reading her. But if you if you don't, um, she's at Mirren Fader, M-I-R-I-N-F-A-D-E-R on Twitter. Uh, make sure you follow her. Make sure you read all her stuff. You will be uh, smarter and happier for it. So, Mirren, <laughs> thanks for coming on. And we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You two do great work. I love this. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.